Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Problem Podcast. I'm Dr. James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem. In this episode I talk to two guests about the risks of alcohol use and attempts to communicate these via recommended drinking guidelines. Firstly I talk to Tom Chivers, a science journalist at Unheard, about how such risks can or should be evaluated and communicated. Next I speak to Colin Angus, an alcohol researcher at the University of Sheffield, about the science and development of the UK's 14 units a week recommended guidelines. So hi Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, issues perhaps you think are really interesting from a, a kind of outside perspective from the alcohol field? Okay, sure. Yeah, my name's Tom Chivers. I am a science journalist. My job title is science editor at Unheard and I'm the author of a couple of books. The most recent one was called How to Read Numbers um, and it's about how numbers in the news go wrong and how, how people can learn to trust or learn when to trust statistics and things that they read in or see in the media. And I suppose the stuff that I'm in, most interested in is risk communication, uh, how these, how the numbers and how the sort of information about alcohol behaviour, alcohol risk, and any any sort of health-related behaviour or anything at all, how, how that makes, how the information makes it from the sort of scientific community, from scientific studies, um, population surveys, epidemiology, and so on, into public understanding and that's obviously mediated via science journalists like like me and and the media as a whole and i, I think that that is probably the, the stuff i'm most interested in and i guess you know the classic example the kind of ongoing issue around this is the recommended guidelines you know currently 14 units a week which were revised again in 2016 and you know within the public health community there's ongoing debates and tensions about is it useful and how it's interpreted and obviously amongst the public at large there tends to be this well often low awareness of it but particularly we see people who drink above the guidelines tend to discount it because it's kind of not congruent with their behavior so that kind of motivated reasoning approach but yeah I think the media has a large role to play in that in terms of as you say just reporting uh, individual studies in ways that kind of uh, attention grabbing or headline maybe dare I say even clickbait so yeah, the guidelines I think are a really interesting thing because they have this this hard cutoff, right? You know, you sort of fourteen units is your recommended level, you know, whatever. And and there's this sort of sense that there is below that is fine and above that is bad, you know, and that's just how it how it runs. And I, and I think there's a, what what needs to be communicated a lot more is that actually there's you know that that's not how it works. There's this really this is a, a sliding scale of impact. And actually, you know, if you drank thirteen instead of units a week instead of fifteen or something like that, it's fundamentally it's not not there's some sharp cutoff. It is a fairly arbitrary level. But you know, what I also think is really problematic with it is that just saying 14 units is the safe level, right? That that is the recommended level. It doesn't actually give people the information they need to make decisions about their own health behavior, their you know alcohol behavior. Like I think I, I'm sure you're aware of David Spiegelhalter, the statistician. He, he wants people to talk about the risk impact on individuals. And so you know, if I if what, we, what you really want to know is if I drink an extra glass of wine, how likely is that to cause health problems for me further down the line? So what is, is really important when you're talking about risk presentation is like how many people does it actually affect if I do change my behaviour in this way? And it's and it's something that me, but something like fifty people out of every hundred thousand would, would have an, a, an alcohol-related disease they don't nor, wouldn't normally have. 
if they drink, I think it's something like two drinks a day, you know, or something. And I think so. So what is really important there is to to for, is to provide these numbers so that someone who I mean, my cousin David, who I wrote the book with, how to read numbers, he is a big big wine fan. He'll spend you know loads more money on a bottle of really nice wine than I ever would because he has he's able to taste these differences and understands it and it matters to him, right? And he and if we were to take wine out of his life then he would have a much less fun life because it's a really big, you know, it's a really enjoyable, you know, in this, you know, it's a hobby for him. And so he might look at that. He might say, well, if I, I drink two drinks a day and that gives me this 15, 100,000 or whatever chance of an, a, a disease that I otherwise wouldn't have. But on the other hand, I get loads of benefit out of it. So that slight risk, slight but real risk, should be taken into account. But also there's a, it should be weighed against the very real reality that I will have less fun in life. And I might trade off a, you know, a small risk of um, having a shorter life against a, a, a very definite chance that I will enjoy life more if I do do these things. So I think that, you know, so that, I think that is really the fundamental issue with guidelines and with risk presentation in general is that this sort of oversimplification this so like here is the safe level above it is bad below it is good doesn't actually give you information that you need to navigate the world to make decisions informed decisions about what is the right decision for my health and my sort of quality of life i think that i don't know how you'd go about changing the guideline system to something like that but i certainly i think we in the media can do more to present these numbers in a way that's meaningful for readers rather than just sort of start cutoffs which really flatten and, and compress information beyond use I mean, I think there's quite a few kind of inherent tensions within it because exactly as you say, a having a single one size fits all arbitrary cutoff is, you know, just, just problematic on so many levels, not least because people look at that and they will just know that there are individual variations, not just in terms of the physiological reactions to alcohol, but in terms of exactly as you say, the, the value that individually we might place on alcohol. You know, some people aren't massively fussed about drinking, don't drink at all for that and other reasons and other people value it highly because they're really into wine or you know it's a big part of their social lives or their work culture or whatever and those are all very complex factors that that kind of come into play so just trying to yeah presenting it as a kind of one size fits all is gonna just not resonate with people but the really difficult thing is that you know in terms of risk communication if you're trying to appeal to people who have perhaps low level of motivation to kind of process or think about a, a particular issue they will be biased towards you know very simplified interpretations of things possibly that then allow them to kind of come to their the, the conclusion that they want so for instance heavy drinkers you know a lot of my research kind of looks at how people you know differences between thinking in categorical or binary ways either you're a problem drinker or you're not versus more of a kind of spectrum approach and heavy drinkers often are kind of biased towards that categorical way because they might be able to say well you know i'm not an alcoholic therefore i don't have a problem and Similarly, they might just say, well, the guideline's rubbish because it's a one-size-fits-all, so I'm not going to pay any attention to it. But then we also, you know, just as humans innately have a tendency towards simplifying things that, you know, if we saw the world in all, or looked at everything that we came across in all its complexity, we'd never get anywhere. So we have to categorise and reduce things down. So there's that tension between, you know, presenting a guideline that's simple and that people can understand versus all of those complications just that we've started to kind of scratch the surface on. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's not as straightforward as look, people have limited time in their day and don't want to say, don't want to start working out their risks and benefits and so on. But I think it is also the case that this sort of, like, if you do flatten it down to a simple uh, 14 units is is the correct amount, then you'll have people making 
wrong decisions for their own enjoyment. Like, yeah, there, there are lots of people I know who just don't drink alcohol, and that is fine. But we should also not avert our eyes too much from the fact that people do drink alcohol, enjoy it, have have a positive relationship with it, which may come at some cost to their health, but which is, you know, valuable in its own right. And I think there's a real thing in public health in general, I mean, of almost just discounting the idea that things can be fun right things that people have enjoyment like I, I could people do risky behaviors in the knowledge that they will come at some cost to their likely health or their likely they might, might get hurt doing skydiving i don't know and that is that needs to be taken into account you know so it's sort of the, the economist's idea of personal preference and you know that they are rationally choosing enjoyment in the short term over long life in the long term i think that needs to be sort of addressed and uh, people i i'm aware of people who say gigantically misinterpret the actual risk of drinking above 14 units and therefore don't drink at all or drink tiny amounts because they think it is really high risk and also i know people who say, who look at this 14 year well it's obviously don't drink far too much because they think well this is silly and it's and and i think not not merely that i'm saying they their decisions are wrong but i think they're making decisions on ba- badly on their own terms they are you know not not drinking alcohol because they think it is riskier than it is or they are drinking too much because they are sort of ignoring the risks that they are and i think the important thing is giving people information to make these decisions in a rational way so they can say yeah the value of me enjoying it is x the value of my continued health past the age of 70 is y and i consider x to be bigger than y you know that 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 is that is i I think we need to let people make these decisions as um sort of fully and as rationally as you can of course the kind of critical psychologist in me will say you know how how capable are we of making rational decisions because of motivated reasoning you know we're we're very strongly drawn towards um often kind of thought processes that justify our existing behaviors rather than starting off with a thought process and then (laughs) deciding what our behavior is going to be but that's a bit of an aside because you know i totally do agree that that the public health community and i think i've been guilty of this in the past can be a bit too siloed about well you know, there are lots of people who drink heavily and, you know, we've got, you know, over a million people with some kind of alcohol-related hospital admission each year. And many of those, you know, don't fit the stereotype of being a problem drinker. And, you know, maybe the alcohol's just contributed partly to their high blood pressure or any huge number of conditions that alcohol's associated with. It's quite easy to get kind of drawn into that and and, and forget about, the, you know, that there's still the majority of people that, that drink within the guidelines or at least close to them most of the time and won't experience any serious health effects at least throughout their lifetime and yes it is really important you know I drink you know I drink moderately having had you know kind of past problems and a long period of not drinking but I do think I obviously drink because I believe that alcohol enhances aspects of my social life or, you know, having a drink or two does relax me. And there's interesting questions about that in terms of, you know, what my motives are or whether that, how much of that is expectancies because, you know, you just have an idea that alcohol is going to cause this effect. So a lot of that might be psychological more than it is uh, the actual physiological effect. So, um, yeah, I totally agree that to have a balanced and a balanced debate and, and nurture kind of more informed decision making we absolutely can't ignore the, the the kind of value that people place on alcohol and much of it very legitimately so no i agree with you it's your your sort of your aside is only it's quite an important aside right the people aren't rational and people do make decisions that are bad for them in various ways you know and i i think that is worth is worth keeping really quite close to the forefront of your mind but i think what you need to do is start by assuming that people broadly know best for themselves, right? You know, not in that, and then you can sort of go from there. Well, actually, I think I, I think the one case, for instance, that I think was instructive here is smoking. I think actually 
almost all smokers of tobacco cigarettes will tell you I would, you know, and I, I haven't got any studies to hear, but to hand, but I'm reasonably sure I've read this, and I hope, hope you know people can write to me and tell me that I'm completely wrong if if I am. But I think you know a large majority of them would say I would like to quit smoking. I know it's bad for me. The the costs of my health outweigh the benefits I get, but I find it hard to quit. And I think that most of us would agree that is by their own on their own terms an irrational behaviour, but they are forced into it by addiction, which is limiting their freedom. Right? That is that is a difficult thing. And I think what would be an interesting comparison there is something like vaping, which I has so much lower health impacts that I would if someone said to me I actually enjoy vaping I'm doing it for the for and I know I'm aware of the health risks I would be much less willing to say you are behaving irrationally and you're you don't know your own preferences or you are being driven by addiction you know so I, so I think there is I, I guess it would probably be a sliding scale a spectrum of you know to what extent you are in control of your own actions and then you get into this complicated discussion about free will and you know addiction and how that interacts but i generally think with alcohol the majority of people i would be willing to say your your behavior is uh, i will start from the assumption that your um your behavior is rational and you you have your own you have your free will and you have your 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 ability to judge these things and then as you know as people slide up the scale towards more problem drinking and addiction and faith and inability to control it then you start saying no you're making decisions by your own life by your own reason you know you're, you're on your own terms would be would be bad decisions and you wish you would make them and, and then you start you think that certainly there's a role for the public health community of offering help out of it and and but i think the the fundamental thing is people to make these decisions about your own health behaviors you need the information presented in a way that is understandable and presented in a way that lets you make sense of it so you can navigate these risks and navigate the benefits and say yes i am i, I enjoy this and i don't enjoy being ill and I can trade these things off in the in at, at the correct levels, you know. Yeah, I mean there's, there's so many interesting issues in there. And, you know, I kind of think that I mean, firstly, when you're saying about smokers, I, I'm drawing on anecdotes here, but I think I mean it totally depends on the way in which you the context and the way in which you frame the question. You know, I was just thinking about someone I met the other day and someone introduced me and this chap was a very, you know, heavy smoker and person introducing me said oh he's an addiction psychologist or whatever and um, the bloke defensively said well I'm not addicted I like it you know <laughs> you know he smokes for, sort of 40 cigarettes a day and you know I was quite aware that there was probably nothing I could say at that point that was going to kind of change his position but yeah I'm sure if I mean you know what kind of happens in addiction treatment is you know certainly from the kind of psychological perspective are motivational based in interventions which explore that cognitive dissonance that the person usually has so so i suppose what i'm getting at is there's all these kind of very complex thought processes that that often mean that yeah the more embedded and problematic the behavior is the more the kind of motivation to justify it might might come out and and you know there's very good reasons for that not just because of that's kind of human nature but also because of stigma and you know social norming that people who smoke or drink heavily socialize with people who do the same so it just that seems like the norm rather than than drinking or smoking less yeah no i completely agree and funnily enough we had a piece in unheard by david hockney the um the artist saying basically i smoke and i really like it and you can all go you know so, so i don't want to i don't want to say he is behaving irrationally but then also, I do, th- yeah, like you say, the, the human brain is not a single thing, is it? Right? You know, there's there's loads of different bits of my brain saying, telling me that I want this at this moment and this at this moment, and they they I can disagree with myself a lot of the time. And pretending that we are one unitary rational thing that has has one particular desire that is thwarted in some way by other parts, you know, that doesn't doesn't 
makes sense. We are complicated beings with lots of desires, and I I, I suspect that, uh, and I think I'm right in saying that in the case of smoking, there are, there is a much te- greater tendency to say I smoke, but I wish I didn't than there is with alcohol or with other things. And I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I suspect. I, I, yeah, I think that, that ends up in a, in a it's a sliding scale spectrum issue. I don't want it to I, I, even with smoking, I wouldn't want to say to people that you were making the wrong decision if they consciously and calmly say. No, I've thought about this. I know the I know the risks. I am aware of them. I have, you know, I've, I've looked into it, and I, I enjoy it enough to want to carry on. And sometimes it is motivated reasoning, but at some point you have to say, okay, well, you've done your reasoning and motivated or not, it's not my place to come in and say you are wrong. You know, I think there, to some degree, without sounding too much like a an internet libertarian, you know, there's, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to let people make their own decisions and do their own harm to themselves, and you can give them information. And I think, I think the the, the right thing to do is giving them information, which is why, you know, like calorie counts at restaurants, I cannot see why people have a problem with that. I think that is, you're giving people correct information to make decisions with, and that is a good thing. And I think that is, uh, that is the case here. Like, like anything about changing the information universe, the information the meme plex around us, like, I don't have a problem with limits on advertising, for instance, because I feel like that is, there are a lot of ways in which limits on advertising can skew the information that gets to people. I don't have a problem with providing things like calorie counts, uh, information on um, you know, health warnings on cigarette packets, even health warnings on alcohol, as long you know, as long as they are provided providing accurate information, that sort of thing. I think that is all fine as long as it's done with the intent of providing information to people rather than necessarily scaring them. I think there's a, a line to be drawn there between providing information to allow people to make their own decisions and providing information deliberately to scare, to push towards a certain course of action, which, you know, and it's a line and it's complicated, which is which, but I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I'd agree with that just largely on the basis that kind of scare tactics probably don't work that, um, you know, I think, you know, I've done some work around kind of defensive processing, you know, how people kind of subconsciously look away or, or kind of just you just avoid information. So kind of health warnings on cigarette packets famously, you know, don't tend to work for existing smokers because their subconscious is so good at identifying it as a threat and just blocking it out. And, you know, there's a lot of complicated theories about how that works and, and kind of things that moderate that effect. But they may actually have some effect in terms of preventing new smokers who, you know, might look at the packet and go, oh, yeah, I don't want that. I might not, I might be less inclined to take it up. So, yeah, generally I'd agree with the kind of scare tactics in that I don't think the evidence is good that they actually work. Whereas, you know, providing good information in the right context might hold more value. The big issue here, I think, really, though, is that, you know, there's no mandatory labelling for alcohol, despite it being a, you know, potentially addictive, very potentially dangerous drug, even if many people use it without such consequences, that, you know, it's a no-brainer that it should have basic health risk information and some calorie information on it. That's not the case because there's a long history of, you know, self-regulatory pledges that, that kind of have or haven't been met. But essentially, the, the kind of providing basic information, you know, on containers or whatever is a no-brainer and that should be kind of mandatory, really. That's that's my view on that. Well, I think the more interesting or, in fact, more important debates are around those kind of environmental influences of behaviour, which we know are really huge, where there is a more of a legitimate argument about how much of a government role is there to play. But the argument that, you know, sort of so-called anti-nanny status say is that too much interference, but then surely the flip side of that is then that all drugs should be legally available and and you know kind of regulated to some degree that, that everything is a balance of regulation you can have too too
too much regulation, which is prohibition, and you can have too little, which is widely available and widely accessible, including to children who are exposed to too much marketing and the products far too or is very cheap and can be easily accessed in dangerous quantities for not a lot of money. And that's kind of where we are, or at least have been with alcohol. So I do think that the issue about choice and kind of the idea of individual res- responsibility is dangerous if because people are heavily influenced by the environment and social norms and all those kind of things. And that from a public health point of view, again, not discounting or rejecting the, the, the positives of alcohol, but I think there's a balance to be struck. And I think a case for, for pricing and advertising curbs that are more effective than what we currently have. Yeah. I mean, I think on the subject of drugs in general, I mean, it is always, I'm always my instinct is always to treat alcohol like one more drug, you know, and I think, I think my, my ideal position would be a weird hybrid of libertarianism as in every, you know, all drugs should be legally available, but, uh, you know, but the, I think it was transform drugs policy, uh, the, the think tank or pressure group, whatever you want to call them, who suggested like a five tiered level where, you know, you can get, her- you can get heroin and co- uh, cocaine or heroin and uh, crack cocaine on prescription. And then all, and then further down, you can buy other ones in pharmacies over the counter and, you know, all these, all these drugs regulated and, uh, down to caffeine, which you can buy in, in any shop, you know, and all, uh, I, f- I feel like that sort of system and alcohol being one more thing on that system where people can be, are allowed to buy it you know, uh, in in perfect normal situations, but there should be. Res- then I think the important thing would be if you if you have that system, you need to have restrictions on on advertising so that there isn't a sort of information free for all of you know the buy our beer and all these you, know, you will be attractive and successful type you know the um ideas that get put into people's head. And I think I think that is to, to maximize sort of the individual freedom to choose the thing they actually want. You need and the ability to choose all the different things, the different drugs that they might want to do and might therefore enjoy, and that is that should be fine. But also then there is you need to they need to be made aware of the different risks and benefits well risks especially because they can choose, they can discover their own benefits, I guess. The you know made made aware of the risks of the health risks and also kept free from as far as possible advertising that can skew the information and, and give a wrong give a bad sense of the risks and benefits and i think that so so i think they're, they're, i've got this sort of weird half quite libertarian half quite restrictive idea that you could be really libertarian with the actual substances but extremely restrictive and conservative on the advertising and information that is a, that they is allowed to be sort of commercially put out around them would be my ideal situation yeah i think i think that's a quite sensible approach really you know i certainly think that yeah kind of staged approach to regulation is as i was kind of saying everything's on a scale of kind of regulation or or kind of should be it's about getting that difficult balance right but yeah I, i kind of sort of think that you know the idea that you can have neutral or totally accurate advertising is maybe a bit of a contradiction in terms isn't the whole idea mm. of advertising to to kind of frame something in a way that makes it maybe more appealing than it really is yes exactly <laughs> yeah i completely agree so in terms of kind of the science journalism and what kind of the, can the media do, you know, I'm certainly very interested in terms of how kind of the media reports on people with alcohol problems. And um, as you probably know, you know, I'm not keen on the idea of alcoholism, which has, you know, long been retired from uh, medical or kind of scientific practice partly for reasons that, again, it's a kind of false binary that that people aren't either alcohol dependent and there's a cutoff at which you either are or aren't, that it's a kind of spectrum and dependence is only one part, you know, alcohol use and problems. Um, so so that's some, one area that I'm, you know, quite keen that, you know, I even wrote, wrote a piece for the, the Guardian quite a few years ago saying, you know, kind of making these arguments, but the editor still put a headline in that, you know, kind of used the term alcoholism, even though the article was explicitly calling for it not to be used. 
of course, there's exceptions if people self-identify with that term, etc. But but do you have any kind of thoughts? I mean, you know, you kind of write pieces that you know look at the evidence and try and dis- disentangle it and come to a kind of reasonable position. But but you know, how might we kind of appeal to to kind of uh, media outlets who by their nature are kind of more clickbait or kind of just attention grabbing kind of news is it a lost cause no 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 okay so so i i want to first i want to say that the i have quite a high opinion i despite my work being quite often i I hate the word debunking but you know like uh, critically assessing uh, other journalists work and sort of saying well this this piece of journalism that's come out is in some way missing the the wider story i do as a on the whole have quite a high opinion of journalists and obviously you know selection bias being what it is or survivorship bias the ones that get through the ones that i am writing about will tend to be the bad ones and that will give an impression that i'm only looking at bad journalists. i generally think journalists are decent people broadly pretty intelligent and who want to do to do good in the world and i think that is true a lot of the time but i do think also you know and most most journalists see journalism as a public service right they're 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 not just out for making money or be getting being famous they want to help the public understand the world they live in that is my it's not like i've done some survey on this or anything but that is you know my my possibly biased uh opinion of journalists from the journalists i know that said journalism is public service but it's also a business and the the business of journalism relies on eyeballs on paper or eyeballs on news or listeners to radio or whatever you know the people mm. paying attention right that it's an it's an attention economy and it is just it is just it is just the case that they that a piece which gets more attention is of more value to a journalistic outlet a media outlet than one that doesn't and this is why you know as a slight aside and a rant here but you know this is why people complain all the time oh you have you aren't covering this uh story of Yemen, Yemen or whatever, you know, the, the mainstream media is not covering this, whatever. Actually, 99 times out of 100, they are covering it. You're not reading it. Like, that's mm. that's what's going on. Is And, you know, people read the the exciting, you know, culture war stories that get everyone riled up and they ignore these the, ser- the serious thing about tens of thousands of people dying of malaria every day. This is not, this is not just on the media. This is on the readers as well, right? Yeah. But um, the problem I have in what that translates to in science journalism in particular is that there is we are looking constantly for exciting things and we're looking constantly for new things and that means that the uh, in science journalism particularly what, what what the new thing that comes you know is we we report the news and the news in science is often new studies right so you get a um you get headlines of new studies since we're talking about alcohol we'll focus on alcohol but got, we've quoted in the book a few you know that even one glass of, of wine a day raises the risk of cancer alarming study re- reveals booze is linked to at least seven forms of the disease the headline from the mail in 2016 or you know then one glass of antioxidant rich red wine a day slashes men's risk of prostate cancer by more than 10 uh, 10 per, so 10 times or 10 percent it's probably 10 percent but chardonnay has the opposite effect study finds daily mail 2018 you know uh, and and the, the trouble there is that Actually, there is a great big body of evidence on the impacts of wine, alcohol, whatever, on health. And each new study is not coming out, you know, fresh out of a clear blue sky. It is a new data point to be added to this massive mountain of data points, which at most can shift the opinion of, you know, if if it's it's a new study on uh, observational study of a few thousand people, it's one little blob of information which can at most shift our opinion a very little bit from the from the you know from the, the mass of opinion we already have and if we if we say if we just ignore all the previous studies and say well now this new study says that alcohol is good for you this week and then next week we ignore that and say alcohol is bad for you this week then it gives this impression of the, the science jumping around whereas actually it, the, the science is 
agglomerating lots of new data points which will slowly form a i guess a bell curve around you know around the real um around the real value which is alcohol may or may not have some tiny protective effect at small amounts that uh, the j curve with is real or not is a an ongoing debate and i, I think you possibly isn't now i don't know I, I, I get so confused about it but then you know broadly the real story is there is a steadily increasing risk the more the more you drink and it's fairly low low levels gets hard to te- hard to detect but real larger levels if you're drinking five drinks a day or whatever the, there is a yeah detectable impact on health and that's just been the case for years now we know that new studies come out and they they throw them on the pile and they just sort of add to that picture and i think there is a um uh the journalism is very bad at saying new study adds small amount of information to already existing pile of information and it's very keen to say new study totally overthrows everything we already knew and that is really unhelpful and that is because we want novelty and we want excitement we want a headline that grabs and i think that is you know, it is it is really hard to avoid because the incentive structure. You know, we, we we need a functioning media system. The media system is important. A media industry is vital for democracy and for you know continued sort of public life. But it is also a business, and it re- relies on this information economy, this sort of attention economy. And I I don't have a good way of saying in, in incentivizing journalists not to uh, look for excitement and novelty but i do think the role of the responsible journalist is to put these new studies into context and say say this is this is a new study it slightly changes what we think but only very slightly or it is very much in line with what we think and you know wait for the new big meta-analysis or a cochrane report or something like that to before it and see if that has, has changed with the given the weight of uh, opinion and i think that is that is something that science journalism as a whole needs to be better at. I have tried to do over my career and is, is a real failing when you see those, one, you, you know, drinking a glass of wine is good for you this week type headlines. And, and I think it's also not fair just to, you know, point the finger at the media, you know, publication bias is real that, you know, mm. science journals are guilty of just the same thing often that, you know, a uh, finding that, you know, a positive finding or uh, will mm. be more likely to be published and, and studies that don't don't have positive results can be really important, but are much harder to get published because they're not exciting. So yes no this is absolutely true this is we talk about this a lot in the book and it's really really important that a lot of it isn't journalists fault a lot of it is well upstream of journalists and you can't really expect a guy you know the guy on the science uh, on, on the science desk at the express or something to be running funnel plots to work out whether the, this new you know, this new meta-analysis is a victim of um uh, of publication bias and yes you're right there's a lot that science has to do to get its house in order and all this sort of stuff and i think there are great things about pre-registering studies and uh, registered reports and things which can sort of tie scientists to the mast or more importantly science journals to the mast of like we will publish publish this study whether it finds a result or not but i I concentrate on journalists in the book we concentrate on journalists in the book but we do point out that actually there's a lot that's going on in science which is just not journalism's fault and uh, science needs to do a lot of work to get its house in order as well yeah it's a bit like kind of turning the oil tanker around as well i think it's it's progress and you know, i think you are now more likely to get you know a lot of studies will only be published if they have pre-registered um and and, and uh, yeah, I think just on the kind of J-curve issue, that, that is an interesting one. I think, again, that's kind of a nice example of what you say, that we, you know, over the last few years, there have been more studies using different methods, um, you know, kind of genetic sequencing or Mendelian randomization that kind of the evidence is amounting that actually these are likely to be uh, far more likely to be um 
you know, kind of confounder effects that there actually aren't um, benefits to heart health uh, through the, the mechanism of alcohol itself, rather than more likely people that drink low amounts of alcohol have healthier lifestyles overall. But it's still, still not conclusive. We still don't quite know yet. But again, I think that's, that's an interesting example because it is something that in the past the media and has picked up on and people really do often lap that up you know i think i don't know if there's been studies about how many people would say yes a glass of red wine or whatever is good for you but i think it'd be pretty high and again that i know that there's uh, studies that show that those kind of biases are higher in people that do drink whose behaviors that that will make them feel better about um and how, how do you think you know what you've looked at or thought about alcohol and does it sort of feed into how you approach alcohol there was a famous case where um the former chief medical officer um said something like every time i reach for a glass of wine i, I think do i really want to increase my risk of cancer and it caused you know absolute outrage got kind of crucified for kind of scaring people but you know on one level it's a kind of valid thought process particularly if that's one she wants to have that's a, that's a rational thing to do isn't it yeah exactly but on another level you know perhaps it's fair to say that not everyone should have to think about their level of cancer risk when they're trying to enjoy a glass of wine. Well, I guess the would have surprised no one at all to know that I drank more in my 20s than I do now that I'm 40. And when I was in my 20s, I do remember thinking, I remember thinking, you know, because the, the evidence hadn't changed that much now and then, between now and then, I do remember thinking, this is probably more than I ought to drink and being aware of the health aspects of it without, without you know, also being aware that I was in my 20s and was pretty healthy and was fine and also smoked a bit and was where that wasn't something I wanted to do forever. And I, I did think I want to stop this. I think I've got actually properly drunk twice in the last couple of years or something. You know, like I, I have, sometimes I'll have three drinks on a Friday night, you know, and um, but normally it's like I'll have a, I'll have a pint and on a, or a gin and tonic with my wife. And, and what has changed is not that I've made any particular health decisions. It is that I've had kids and I've had got my jobs got more responsible and I've, you know, I go out less because I'm older and it's, you know, and it's just, I've naturally become less in situations when I would be wanting to drink eight pints, you know, I would, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to tease out what is the cause of that. And I do think, you know, that I'm, I'm sure that there, there is some bit of the, of the brain that, uh, that takes into account the fact that I'm aware of alcohol risk and uh, alcohol health risks and in my decision not to drink a bottle of Laphroaig every night. But because, you know, but there was just, basically at some point in my thirties, I found that alcohol around the house doesn't disappear immediately. And you can have, you can have a bottle of wine that uh, sits in the in the cupboard for a few days until you actually want to have it and I, I just think that's a lot of just getting older and life changing and you know being settled down and being more boring nowadays so yeah I, I do i do think that alcohol health risks i've always been aware of them but yeah but i, I don't i don't see them as a particular driver of my changing behavior that said I, I, you know when you go to the gp and they ask you or you fill out some online form i'm aware of the finding that everyone underestimates how much they drink and I do. I would be really intrigued to know whether if I actually did an alcohol, you know, if I, I say, well, I don't think that I get past the fourteen units. I'm probably under the, uh, underneath it. And then I think, wait, I, are you really? If if I actually sat down and took a dark, kept a diary of it, would I find that I am drinking much more than I think I am? I I don't think I do. I think I'm reasonably on it. But I, I you know, that, like we've discussed throughout so throughout this thing, there's there's a lot of sort of complicated psychological stuff goes on about hiding your own level of drink from yourself and all that sort of stuff anyway this is a big long uh, waffly ramble but I, I don't think that my behavior has been gigantically driven by alcohol risk and i think it is mainly just driven by the fact that i haven't got time to drink these that much these days i'm not in situations where i would and i hate hangovers i think those are all kind of perfectly normal and quite typical responses or behaviors that you know 
there's a lot of stuff about over the, the life course transitions, just most people mature out of alcohol problems, you know, problematic drinking. Many people do it in their early years and 20s, but just simply mature out of it because of cruel of responsibilities and so on. But similarly, I just don't think many people do factor in the health risks, partly because of delayed discounting and it feels so far away, but are kind of in the moment decisions are kind of more more powerful. And, you know, how does it affect us the next day might be a more powerful driver than you know whether you might increase your risk of x 20 years down the line or whatever um so yeah thanks so much tom that that's been a really really interesting uh chat and um yeah well, best of luck with with the new book what what's the name of the book and where can you get it um how to read numbers uh, a guide to statistics in the news and knowing when to trust them all good bookshops obviously but um uh if you go to howtoreadnumbers.com uh, you'll find links to various places you can buy it and also a link to our statistical style guide. We, we, the book is for readers, you know, sort of how to navigate numbers in the news, but there's also a bit on the end, which is sort of for journalists to try and do better. Uh, sort of so a few simple tips for journalists to sort of how to present numbers more effectively and more uh, informatively. We, we ask readers to come and sign a petition to encourage people to sign up to that or a similar statistical style guide to sort of improve statistical literacy in the media because we think that would be a really useful thing for exactly the sort of stuff we've been talking about for presenting information about everything, including alcohol, in ways that readers can then use to make informed decisions about their own risks and benefits in their own lives. Next, I spoke to Colin Angus about the science and development of the UK's weekly drinking guidelines. Thanks so much for joining me, Colin. Um, can you just tell me briefly a bit about what you do? And then, um, yeah, we'll, we'll try and kind of unpick this question around 14 units. How much risk does it really raise? Yeah, so I'm a, a senior research fellow at the University of Sheffield, and my work is primarily modelling the effect of alcohol policies on drinking behaviour and on health. So I've done a lot of work trying to sort of mathematical modelling relating drinking to health outcomes. And when the UK chief medical officer announced that they were going to review the drinking guidelines a few years ago, um, myself and some of my colleagues did some modeling work as part of that review to look at how the risks, the health risks associated with drinking changed at different levels. So that was to inform the, the development of the guidelines. So the, there are obviously lots of different ways in which you can set drinking guidelines. And in the past, they've generally been set by getting a load of clever people who know stuff in a room and kind of locking the door until they all come up with what they think is a, you know, a, a good answer, right? What's an acceptable guideline based on all that they know about the evidence in terms of the, the health harms associated with drinking. But more recently with kind of, you know, improvements in the evidence and, um, a tendency, like a, a desire to try and be a little bit more rigorous about it, right? Rather than just some people criticize the previous drinking guidelines as basically just sort of sticking a finger in the air and going, we reckon it's this. So there's two different approaches that have been used in other countries to try and sort of empirically guide the process of setting drinking guidelines. Um, and they're known as the Canadian and the Australian approaches because they were first used in Canada and Australia. So the Canadian approach says that you set your guideline at the point at which if you drink any more than that, your risk of death is higher than someone who doesn't drink at all. Okay, so it's it's saying that you set the guideline at the point at which your risk is elevated at all, right? So any the point at which drinking increases your risk of death. Um, and the Australian approach says that, um, well, actually, you know, all sorts of things that we do 
in the world are risky and you know have risks associated with them right you know driving a car is risky but we still drive cars all the time and so it's based on this idea that there is an acceptable level of risk that we're willing to take on when we do stuff and so they came up with the idea that an acceptable level of risk was a 1% lifetime chance of dying as a result of uh, of your drinking uh, the idea there is that you set the drinking guideline at the point to which if you drink at that level across your whole life, there's a 1% chance of that drinking being the thing that will kill you. And so with my colleagues, we took, you know, so we reviewed the latest evidence on associations between drinking levels and risks of death um, for a whole range of different health conditions, and then used that to try and estimate the risk associated with drinking at different levels to use these two different approaches to say, well, if you use the Canadian approach, then your drinking guideline is going to be X. And if you use the Australian approach, it's going to be Y. So does our our kind of current 14 unit a week guideline, was it an attempt to lie somewhere between the two or? Well, it's, it's complicated because, um, you know, the, the relationship between drinking and health is, is a very uh, multifaceted and complicated thing because there are, a whole range of different health conditions that are affected by alcohol. And these include conditions that are associated with long-term chronic drinking. So that things like liver disease, but also cancer and heart disease. And then there are also health conditions associated with intoxication. So things like alcohol poisoning and injuries. And so you have to try and sort of account for both of these things, right? So the, the chronic health conditions, they're only related to how much you drink on average, whereas these acute conditions related to intoxication, they're also related to the patterns in which you drink. So if you have a, you know, two people who are drinking at the same average, right, two people who are drinking at the guidelines, let's say, okay, 14 units a week, and one of them has two units every day, and the other one has 14 units on one day, they're not facing the same risk, right? They probably have similar chronic risks, but their risks of alcohol poisoning or their risks of injury are very different because one of them is, you know, is getting drunk probably, and the other one isn't. And so it's important to try and take that into account. So we modeled, uh, we modeled the risk associated with different patterns of drinking, right? So it's, it's not that um, we can say, oh, the Australian approach says the guideline should be 14. Because we said well, the Australian approach, if you assume that everyone drinks all of their alcohol on one day of the week, is this. And it, that gives you a much lower guideline because that's a much riskier pattern of drinking compared to saying if everyone spreads it out nicely across the seven days of the week. So sort of 14 is kind of somewhere in the middle of all of these different numbers that we produced, essentially. So we had separate results for men and for women separate results for the Canadian and the Australian guideline, and then there's separate results for these different patterns of drinking. So there's, you know, big tables with whole slews of numbers in them. And the 14 was is kind of somewhere in the middle-ish. So yeah, that's really, really well explained. And I think the, the point about, you know, saving it up versus spreading it out is, is really important because I think that question does come up a lot. People want to know, you know, what's worse to, to, you know, to binge drink or to drink less, but, but more often. And, you know, again, it just depends on so many things, but assuming it was at least an equal amount, then, then they're just different types of risk. And, um, yeah, it, it really is so individually dependent, but yeah, any reflections on, on how we, then try and communicate this that as i discussed with tom that there's this 14 unit a week guideline albeit that the guideline itself has kind of small print if you like um you should take 
what is it, three days off or... Two, it said, it suggests at least two drink-free days, I think. That's right, yeah. Um, I always kind of go for three because I think it, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it suits me better. But um, yeah, and, you know, it doesn't specify don't binge drink or how much a binge is, but it says, you know, don't sort of drink it all in one go. So they, they did build in some kind of caveats to it, didn't they? But it's still essentially a kind of one size fits all. And that does present the challenge that people know that they're not an average person or that, you know, as I discussed with Tom, that people place different levels of value on on their drinking for different reasons and in different contexts. So yeah, what how best to try and navigate this kind of risk of this kind of all or nothing interpretation of this threshold of 14 units yeah i think it's it's um it's incredibly challenging and i think part of the part of the difficulty is as you say this is an average right this is this is sort of the guideline for an average person and obviously not many people are actually average but it's also it's also tricky because the risks that any individual faces are you know there's, there's a whole host of things influencing that so there are biological factors there are behavioral factors and then there's kind of situational factors, right? So, so behavioral factors are stuff like the drinking patterns, the, the ways in which you're drinking. And you, obviously you have some control over that and you can choose to drink your 14 units or however much you're drinking in, you know, a, a smaller number of heavier drinking occasions or you can spread it out more. But you're much, you're not really in control of the biological differences, right? So men and women face different biological risks associated with drinking, for example. And then there's the sort of the situational risk, which is kind of other factors, things like being in poor health, which you don't necessarily have direct control over, but which can also feed into to your risk. So although you can modify your own risk to a certain extent, right, you can so you could drink more heavily, but in a way that sort of moderated your own risk by spreading your drinking out, for example. How you try and communicate all of that to individuals is really, really tricky. So something, the big change when the, the new drinking guidelines were announced is the fact that the male guideline came down from 21 to 14 units to join the female guideline. And there's quite a lot of sort of kickback against that. People didn't really like it. And I think the, the, the rationale for, for bringing it down is actually really interesting. So if a, all else being equal, if a man and a woman drink the same amount of alcohol, the woman will generally face a slightly higher risk because of biological factors, right? And so that's sort of always historically been the reasoning behind men having higher guidelines, which has been the case in lots of countries around the world. But actually, what we found is that although that's true, basically, men do more stupid stuff. So men are much less good than women at moderating the behavioral risks, okay? We're much more likely to get drunk and get in a fight or whatever. And so actually those two things kind of cancel each other out. So at low levels, at relatively lower levels of drinking, men are at a higher risk because these behavioral factors are dominating. And then at higher levels of drinking above the guideline, women face a higher risk because of the biological factors are dominating, which, are, you know, which is really interesting, I think, and kind of, you know, speaks to the complexity of trying to, to explain this, right? Because the, you know, you can you can control those behavioural factors to some extent, but you can't control the biological factors. Yes, that's super interesting. And I, I suppose I do, though, think, you know, and this is just kind of based on an assumption that, that people are more interested in the guidelines from a, a health risk or a long-term health risk point of view, because people know that, you know, when I used to think when I drink problematically, you know, I knew that 
I was probably more likely to do something stupid and that, you know, I was getting hangovers and they probably weren't a good sign. I was never really thinking about the long-term health consequences. So I think, you know, people are probably more aware of the kind of short-term acute risks and already factoring those in a bit more. But but the question mark really is probably more, well, what is my risk of those longer-term health consequences? And obviously things like cancer are, you know, highly political because of the resonance that has and you know, the uncertainty and, you know, arguably the very low level of risk of cancer from low levels of alcohol use. But yeah, it's also so complex because as when you said, you know, well, if you minimise your risk by spreading it out a bit more, then I agreed on a technical level. But then at the same time, there's other knock-on risks from drinking maybe less, but more often, which might include what we might call habit or psychological dependence or tolerance or whatever. And that then creeping up over time and possibly leading to to more drinking. So yeah, it's just endlessly complicated and, and so many if scenarios you could attach to every individual, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that habit idea is quite it, it is really interesting because so something that we looked at but which wasn't really given very much prominence in sort of the, the final the guidelines themselves is we looked at how risk varies with age and basically at younger ages alcohol is responsible for a higher proportion of deaths particularly among young men but at older ages obviously it's responsible for there are a lot more deaths right people you know a lot more people die thankfully at older ages than younger ages and so in absolute terms alcohol is responsible for a lot more deaths in in older ages and so if you were setting a guideline in terms of absolute risk you would say that younger people could have a higher guideline because their absolute risk of death from drinking at higher levels is much less than people at older ages So you could make an argument there that you should have higher drinking guidelines for young people than older people. But there's two problems with that. And one of them is this sort of habit idea that you're talking about, right? In a sense that if you just say, oh, well, it's fine for younger people to drink more, then maybe that means that makes it more likely that they're going to become older people who drink more because, you know, sort of it's, it's become a habit. But there's also the fact that the association between um, when you drink and when you face the risk can actually like that, that, that could be a long time. It can take a long time for the, the full health impact of your drinking to develop over time. And so even though the young people might not be facing those risks of their drinking now, they will have to face the risks in the future of their drinking now, as if, if you see what I mean. So, you know, 20 years down the line, they might face an increased risk of developing cancer because of the drinking they were doing now. And so that makes everything a bit more, a little bit trickier. Yeah, well, just impossible to, you know, it, it just comes back, you know, how how on earth do we communicate this versus, you know, this, this single threshold guideline? I mean, I think I, I quite like kind of traffic light systems, you know, in the past we've had alcohol risk-based messages with a green and amber and a red and, you know, a kind of arrow that tries to reflect the spectrum nature of it, i.e., you know, the more you enter red or above that level, the higher the risk will be. It still obviously goes nowhere close to capturing some of the nuances that, that we're touching on, but at least it does convey it's not a binary all or nothing. It's not 14 units once you hit that, you know, it's death, and and if you stick to below that, there's no risk at all. Um, any other ideas? <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I I totally agree with you on that point, and I, I you know, I think it's important that 
that we're careful in the, in terms of the way we talk about drinking guidelines, right? I don't like them being called safe drinking guidelines, for example. I don't, I don't like limits because it implies that a limit for me is like a speed limit. You have to stick to it. So yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, so I think it's, you know, they're presented as lower risk guidelines. And, and I think the wording in the guidelines themselves is sort of, is, is okay. It's, it's talking about, you know, generally, if you stick within these guidelines, most of the time, then your risk should be relatively low. You know, it's that kind of slightly woolly language, which I think is appropriate, right? It is, you know, it is useful for people to have an understanding that it is a spectrum, but also that, um, you know, that the overall risk curve gets steeper, the further up the curve you are. So, you know, the, the additional risk of drinking one more unit is more for someone who's drinking 50 units a week than for someone who's drinking 20 units a week. So essentially, the more you drink, the more having one less a day or one less a week or whatever is going to be beneficial for you in, in health terms. Yeah, it, yeah, it, absolutely. Sort of the, the bigger the marginal gain from each from each unit or drink you cut out, the higher, the, the heavier you are a drinker. Yeah, and we see that from the, the kind of classic curves, including like the J curve, you know, it's steeper, the higher up the level. Yeah, I mean, that's why I guess we see, you know, liver disease and, and health harms concentrated in the heaviest sections of, of drinkers, etc. I think there's something else that's really interesting about the risks associated with drinking, which differentiates it from, say, smoking, right? So, if you smoke heavily throughout your life, there's a pretty good chance that that smoking is going to kill you, right? There's a pretty good chance you'll develop lung cancer or, you know, something else as a result of your smoking and it will kill you. I've heard kind of try and persuade people to quit by saying, well, you know, if, if you quit before you're 30, then it probably won't. But if you don't by that point, then, you know, I guess it's a, probably a similar kind of thing to the 14 units. That might be an aggregated estimate based on some some data, but of course it's still hugely dependent on the individual and their multifactorial circumstances. For sure. But the, but the, the, diff, the, the important difference between smoking and drinking is that it's really right. It's really likely that your smoking is going to, you know, if you're a heavy smoker, it's really likely that your smoking is going to be the thing that kills you. And you'll die a few years earlier than you might otherwise have done, right? You, you maybe die in your late seventies on average rather than in your eighties. Whereas if you're a heavy drinker, right, you might face a similar reduction in life expectancy. Okay. In terms of the average years of life you might expect to lose to alcohol, but actually it's much more of a gamble. You're much more likely to die very young, right? There are a lot of heavy drinkers who die in their sort of 40s and 50s, but then there are other heavy drinkers who don't and who go on to lead other relatively long lives. And so it's much more of a gamble than it is with smoking. If you, you know, if you drink heavily, you might face the same expected loss of life, but actually there's a, a chance that you'll die really young. But that's more because of, you know, the behavioural consequences, the accidents and injuries that are likely to be fatal more so than the health risks, right? Well, no, no, not, not necessarily, because a big part of it is liver disease, for example, right? There's a, some statistics around alcoholic liver disease being one of the biggest causes of years of working life lost, right? It, it's a disease that kills people in their sort of, in their 40s and 50s, typically, much more so than smoking-related diseases kill people that are, Sort of, of working so you know that's interesting and i don't know how you you know whether you should communicate that to people or how you communicate that to people right it's much more of a gamble i guess you know and some people might fancy their chances so maybe maybe that's not so good to communicate to people but 
you know, maybe people have the right to know that. Mm. And also definitely seen figures on the risk of, you know, synergistic effects of being overweight and a heavy drinker. And again, it just, you know, really goes through the roof in terms of liver disease risk. So, you know, it's not just about the alcohol as well. It's about all the other stuff. No, absolutely. You know, for the same reason, um, if you're a smoker and a heavy drinker, you face a much greater risk of uh, throat cancer, for example. And these these things aren't factored into the the calculations that we did, the modeling we did that informed the guidelines. So we're, we're not accounting for those, you know, additional risks. It's also worth saying that all of the work that we did is only focused on death as, as the outcome, right? We haven't really accounted for ill health. And we also haven't, all that we looked at is the harm to the health of the drinker themselves, right? We didn't look at any of the harms to other people that might arise from someone's drinking. So in those senses, right, if you also consider those, they're only going to lower the guideline because they're, you know, they're, they're extra risks and harms that we haven't considered, you know, what economists would call externalities. Hmm. Yeah, so definitely no no simple take home messages. Um, I just keep thinking back to say a listener who might be thinking, well, you know, where does this leave me? And you know, the CMO's comment about years ago that I, I mentioned with Tom about reaching for a glass of wine and thinking of the risk of cancer. You know, I I do drink and you know moderately, having had past problems. But when I say moderately, I mean basically within the guidelines. But you know, I'm still always mindful about actually this isn't good for my health, but I enjoy it because it's you know a social thing to do and I do feel a bit relaxed when I have a drink and so on. But I guess ultimately we want the understanding of the risk to be we want more people to have to be able to factor in that risk, albeit it's so complicated, but to have just a general sense of, well, I'm going to drink or I'm going to drink for these reasons, but I'm also going to factor in these reasons, even though it, you know, hopefully won't keep me up at night worrying if it, if it's a fairly low level. Yeah, it's super complicated. I mean, you know, if I almost feel like it's it, because of all the complexity, it's, you know, it's just best communicated as saying, you know, if you generally stick within the guidelines, then you're unlikely to be doing yourself a significant amount of harm. Hmm. And if you drink above the guidelines, then... That risk goes up. Yeah, exactly. Your risk increases. You're probably, um, you're not doing yourself much good. And the further above the guidelines you are, the more harm that you're doing. But it does become very difficult when you want to try and... I understand that it's it's good to try and give people an understanding of, of what that means, right? So... Um, to say, you know, if you're drinking 21 units a week, how's that different from 35 units a week or 50 units a week? But it's it, it's tricky to communicate all of that. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, this conversation has gone some way to, you know, helping maybe interested people <laughs> unpick it a little bit. And, you know, all, all that work you've done, all that modelling was kind of put into summary guidelines and documents that I think you can make sense of if, if you're motivated enough to, to go and read them. Yeah, so something that, that I think is potentially quite useful and informative is that in the, the report that we wrote, we put together a couple of tables that said, you know, on one side, we've got average drinking level. And then across the top, we've got drinking patterns, right? How many days a week do you spread that over? And then in, in the boxes is sort of the, basically the, um, the proportion of deaths in people drinking at that level that you would expect to be caused by alcohol, right? So people who are drinking at, um, 14 units a week, you know, if they're, if they're having two drink free days, Right. So they're drinking 14 units spread over five days. It's just over 1%. Right. 
right? That's the, for men, just over 1% for men. It's under, just under 1% for women. So, and then you, you can see how that risk changes. So if you're drinking at 49 units a week, so you're drinking really very heavily and you spread that over five days, then that goes up to 15% for men and 23% for women. Okay. So there's a, a, you know, a pretty significant chance that if you're drinking at that level, that the alcohol, that's going to kill you. So I think those tables maybe are quite, might be, you know, a helpful way for people who are interested to be able to assess or to make more informed choices. But that, you know, that, that relies on people being interested enough to work it out and go and try and look it up. I think, yeah, some kind of simplified version of those might be useful as a kind of health risk campaign potentially. But, you know, as I said to Tom, there's lots of other very difficult challenges, including people who <laughs> tend to drink above the guidelines are more motivated to discount them because you know, maybe they're not at a stage where they're ready to, you know, think about their alcohol use. And of course, many people drink above the guidelines for reasons that are far from lack of understanding of or awareness of the risk. It's, you know, because our lives are difficult and challenging and stressful or we may have developed alcohol dependency for a whole multitude of reasons. So yes, you know, what can we do to basically communicate these risk levels in ways that might reach some people, but acknowledging, you know, the whole complex set of factors that exist beyond the guidelines as well. I think it's, you know, it's, it's also worth saying that We've got all this uncertainty because risks are going to vary lots between individuals. But there's also, a, you know, a significant amount of scientific uncertainty about the risks, right? We've, we've, you know, we've had a huge number of studies and people continue to do studies looking at the risks of the health risks associated with drinking. But because, um, you know, running randomized controlled trials, which would be the gold standard in which you either force people to drink a fixed amount or, you know, force them not to drink at all and then follow them up for 20 years and see how their health, you know, see if there's any health differences between the two groups. There's all sorts of, you know, moral and logistical complications about trying to, trying to do that. So we don't really have that sort of evidence and we've got to try and make do with slightly lower quality evidence. And that's why there's, you know, there's still huge uncertainty about whether or not drinking at low levels is protective or not. Right. And, you know, if you want to start a fight in a room full of alcohol epidemiologists, just express a strong opinion about whether protective effects are real or not. And, you know, chaos will ensue. Because I thought the kind of consensus was forming around, you know, particularly in light of the recent, more recent studies based on, you know, the kind of genetic variants tending to point in the direction that there aren't likely health benefits. It's more confounding factors, um, you know, sequitur effects and so on. Um, I mean, I guess I'm still kind of a bit agnostic about it. You know, that's that certainly is evidence that points in the direction that says they're not real. But, you know, there's also limitations in that approach as well. It's not, you know, that's still not a randomized control trial. It's still, you know, it's still just a different imperfect way, albeit maybe slightly less imperfect than the other ways that we have of looking at it. The other thing might be worth saying always is that if you're looking for health benefits, there's far easier ways to uh, accrue them than taking up drinking at low levels if you don't drink already. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any anything in the evidence to suggest that if you're a non-drinker, you should take up drinking because it'll improve your health. 
think that's you know that's certainly not borne out by the evidence. We- the epidemiologists would agree on that, presumably. Yes, <laughs> I think so. Well, thanks so much, Colin. That's that's been really really useful, and um, we'll we'll kind of watch this space, I suppose, as the evidence continues to emerge about different levels of risks amongst different drinkers at different stages, and and so on. All right, thanks, James. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast, so please feel free to follow us or get in touch there.